It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Escalation of tensions over Northern Ireland as EU and UK may resume trade talks. Do unionists feel they've been cut off? We'll have reaction. And confusion remains over government contradictions on the new quarantine rules. But holidaymakers have been warned about clampdowns. On our first panel tonight, Minister of State for Research and Development, Martin Hayden, and Sinn Féin TD, Pierce Doherty. As the January deadline has passed, and news today that Pfizer and Moderna jobs are the preference for over 70s, we'll ask why many nursing home residents are still waiting for vaccinations. And later, country superstar Nathan Carter on Life Without Gigs and reaching out to fans to bring joy down the line. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVNTV. This evening, Declan Lawn, former BBC journalist and now a screenwriter, joins us from Belfast. Declan, thank you for joining us. Yesterday you tweeted, I'm 44, 22 years of my life up until 1988, we're in a Northern Ireland beset by conflict, and then 22 years mostly without it. For the first time I feel there's a real chance of Northern Ireland slipping backwards. To what extent, I don't know. But it doesn't feel good right now. Why is that? Why did you write that? Well, this is a concern of mine that goes back to the 24th of June uh, 2016, the early hours after the Brexit vote. And um, ever since then, I've been extremely worried about the very delicate balance of the Good Friday Agreement being upset, because that was a very precise agreement. It was an agreement to press pause on the constitutional question. And Brexit has really pressed play and then fast forward on all of these issues that... uh, that really should have been slow burning over 10 to 20 years. And now I think that what we're looking at is the the first fruits of um, all of the instability to come. Do you think that the link between Northern Ireland and Great Britain is potentially about to be broken, that we are moving inexorably towards a united Ireland? I don't think that. I think that process will take some time to unfold, but I think loyalists and unionists think it. And that is part of my concern, because I think that loyalists and unionists have been sold a fantasy by their political leaders, the DUP. It was a fantasy that was never attainable. It was a fantasy that said essentially that uh, Brexit would make them more British, would enhance their Britishness. It was never going to happen. And now that reality is starting to dawn, my worry is that loyalism in particular finds itself in an ideological and practical cul-de-sac that there's nowhere to go and that nobody is talking to them. The DUP is not really talking to them. Uh, I don't think the Irish government is. I don't think Boris Johnson is. And this is part of my concern, Okay, I'm not saying that the conditions exist to go back to what we had 30 or 40 years ago. We're not there. But we are in a place where I'm concerned uh, that 
some kind of violence may be a possibility. And whenever that happens, it's always very difficult to predict how it goes. Now, I'm not an expert in loyalism. I'm not casting aspersions on that community. I'm just saying a lot of people are very angry and very lost, and it breeds instability. And uh, and this is all because of Brexit and the way it was sold. Thank you very much, Declan Lawn. We're joined now by Minister of State Martin Hayden and also by Sinn Féin TD Piers Doherty. But Jim Wells of the DUP is with us on Skype. Uh, Jim... Has Brexit backfired on you? The very thing that you thought would enhance your Britishness could be what brings us about towards the end of the union. Well, first of all, there's still not the slightest hint that the unionist population are remotely interested in any form of United Ireland. There's no discussion amongst my community. And secondly, there will always be a significant minority of the nationalist community who will vote to remain within the United Kingdom. So I can't see it in my lifetime, and I don't think it'll be in the lifetime of anybody in your studio. But then what about the situation that you're complaining so bitterly about at present, the border down the Irish Sea and the inconveniences that that's causing you? Well, of course, that could be remedied very quickly, simply by invoking what is known as Article 16 uh, of what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, and by invoking that, as you know, was done last Friday night by the EU to facilitate its vaccine imports. If that was done, then many of the problems that unionists face with Brexit would be overcome immediately. And I think that has to be the way forward because there, there are problems being caused by the protocol. We <laughs> you can't even import hay. You can't export dogs or cats or ferrets. Uh, our plants can't be imported. It, it's a nonsense. Things which were perfectly safe a month ago are now deemed to be a risk to public health. So that being the case, we have the mechanism to sort this out and sort it out quickly. Why on earth would the British government do that just little more than a month after putting in place an agreement with the European Union that it needs for all sorts of reasons beyond just getting a settlement in relation to Northern Ireland? Well, they can do it because the EU are more than happy to do it on Friday evening. Uh, so therefore, we were told that there could be no border uh, between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Well, one fell swoop, the EU commissioners uh, abolished that. It didn't happen so though, it, Jim. It was very quickly overruled after an intervention by the Irish government and after discussions between the EU and the UK. Britain didn't want it to happen either. It didn't happen but it showed you how little the EU, EU thought of the Northern Ireland Protocol that was prepared to set it aside at the drop of a hat in order to facilitate its import of vaccines. So therefore, if the EU can think about doing it and almost did, well, why can't we do it in order to facilitate trade with no impact whatsoever on EU regulations? Because, for instance, we have to get our dogs vaccinated for rabies. There's no rabies either in the island of Ireland or in the UK. So why do we have to do that? Why can't we not take our budgies to Edinburgh to show them? Why is there a danger over steel imports? This is all absolute nonsense. And therefore, the protocol needs to be amended immediately to stop it happening. Martin Hayden, has the European Commission undermined the integrity of the border in the Irish Sea with this threat to invoke Article 16 last Friday night? Well, first of all, Matt, to say what happened last Friday shouldn't have happened. Um, and it happened, it, it was a suggestion that came from a very small group of officials in, in Brussels, as I understand it, without consultation. As soon as um, details of it were published, um, the Irish government got on to Brussels straight away and it didn't happen. 
um, and Ursula von der Leyen and others have now accepted it shouldn't have happened. So I think we need to be very clear on that. It should never have been countenanced and it will never be countenanced. This is international law, which we will ad- ad- adhere to. It's international law that was passed overwhelmingly by Westminster also, and it's written into British law. So the protocol Yeah, is- but if the European Union threatens to cancel it, what's to stop the British for their own particular internal political needs to saying, well, if the EU is willing to do that, so why don't we to keep the unionists happy? So in fairness, it wasn't a threat. It was a mis- very misguided um, idea by a couple of officials. It wasn't run by commissioners. It wasn't. Uh, it had no political oversight. As soon as that issue arose, it was buried by the Irish government um, and others who contacted them to highlight exactly um, how this was completely unacceptable. So it didn't happen. It, 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 it even been raised and accountants should not have happened, but that was with a very small group, none of whom were politicians. So I don't ever see any pos- possibility of this happening from U- Europe or Ireland, letting it even be countenanced. And, and I think lessons have been learned from that uh, on the EU side. And I, I welcome the outcomes of the meeting uh, between Vice President uh, Sefcovic and uh, uh, Gove today, this evening. Pierre how much of a problem has the European Commission caused for maintaining the security of this particular arrangement in place only since the start of the year? Look, what happened on Friday was seriously ill-judged. I don't think there was a politician on the island of Ireland, regardless of their position on the constitutional question, who thought that was a good move um, and and it was rightly uh, reversed within a matter of hours. Um, I understand the European Commission has apologised for that at their, their meeting today. But look, the reality is Jim Wells, the DUP and others who are opposed to uh, the the Irish protocol, who have been cheerleaders for Brexit, who promised their electorate that this would be, uh, you know, all bells and whistles and everything would be great, who dismissed the arguments that were being put forward by ourselves in debates during the referendum and indeed others in relation to the disruption that that would have uh, and, and, and led their supporters up the garden path with this type of fantasy uh, that everything would be perfect. Unfortunately, those loudest voices now are are the ones who are, are, are crying the most. And it isn't about what happened on Friday because their job is, their efforts are, is to try and uh, get rid of the Irish protocol. But they're living in a fantasy land. And what they're doing now is what they did five years ago, which is lead their supporters up the garden path. The protocol is there. It's an international law. It has to be upheld by Britain and the European Union. And it is a result of five years of painstaking negotiation. And it is only in operation for five weeks. So there are mechanisms there between joint committees where these issues in terms of teething problems can be smoothed out. And that's my understanding that that will now happen uh, beginning next week. Okay, Jim Wells, are you guilty yet again of misleading your followers by suggesting you'll be able to get things done which simply aren't possible, in that you won't be able to get Article 16 revoked? Well, it is actually perfectly possible that the Prime Minister could indeed invoke Article 16 uh, and, and change everything. The question I would ask your viewers is, would anyone tolerate a border between the rest of the Irish Republic and Donegal? Would you tolerate uh, customs checks uh, uh, somewhere uh, uh, near the <laughs> letter Kenny or something like that. Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't dream of it. So therefore, it's a very important constitutional position. It's also not needed because, frankly, the issues that the checks are being invoked to achieve aren't there in the first place. So I think we, are, we shall continue to put pressure on a prime minister to exercise the power that he has to remove uh, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol which will have no impact whatsoever on, on trade or hygiene. Jim, have you not learned from your experiences with Boris Johnson that he huffs and he puffs, but he doesn't actually deliver for you? We've all seen, for example, a famous video that he made with 
Britain's people in the north, promising that there would be no such thing ever as a border down the Irish Sea, that there would never be paperwork for imports and exports. And the very thing he promised would not happen is exactly what happened. And that's his form. Yes, and many unions were let down because that's not what we voted for when we voted to leave the European Union. We won't judge him on his comments or his promises. We'll only judge him on what he actually does. And it's becoming more and more apparent that the Northern Ireland Protocol is going to cause huge problems in the future and has to be dealt with immediately. Uh, and I think that penny's beginning to drop at Westminster where many people see how ridiculous it is. It wouldn't be tolerated on the border between Wales and England. So why should it be tolerated between the, on the Irish Sea between the rest of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland? So therefore, um, there's lots going on at the moment, but every day goes by, we see more and more of the difficulties the protocol is going to cause and it's something has to be done about it fairly quickly. But you have to remember, and this is the thing, that, you know, Jim's gone back to try and fight a campaign uh, that they, they lost in terms of, you know, uh, not having the, the Irish protocol. And those, you know, intense negotiations that were really painstaking. But during that process, there were options that, that meant that there wouldn't be an Irish protocol, there wouldn't have been those checks, but they were rejected by the DUP. They were rejected by the likes of Jim Wells and Jim Allister. And that is why the, 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 the ground or the, the solutions that were available were so narrow. So there was other options there during the negotiations, but Theresa May's backstop was, was rejected by who? By the DUP, who had the who had the balance of power at the time. So the idea that you know, and and this that that that, that there's some type of fantasy solution, and that you know an international agreement that resulted after five years of negotiation is going to be simply torn up five weeks after it's put into operation is fanciful. And what is really disappointing here is that unionism are not learning the lesson. Instead of dialing things down, instead of working the ways to resolve some teething issues that are there, what they have done is dialed up the rhetoric. They have, they've come out with hysteria. So Jim Allister and Jim Wells have come out with their three-point plan. The DUP has come out with their five-point plan to get rid of the protocol. Instead of actually what we need to do is calm heads and recognise there was never going to be a good Brexit. What we've been trying to do is clean up the mess that the Brexiteers, which are the minority in the North, the majority supported remaining within the European Union. The majority of parties do not agree with Jim Wells or the DUP in relation to what they're doing and what they're suggesting about not legislating for Brexit in the Assembly and not cooperating on a north-south basis is simply reckless and is all about trying to dial up hysteria and lead unionism down a garden path that is going to lead nowhere else but in disappointment. We're just a final question to you, Jim Wells, on this. What if your campaign fails? Where are you then? But I think we are in for a period of instability because there is huge concern within the unionist community about not only the symbolic nature of the protocol, but its practical outworkings. And I think Stormont has a, a fair degree of power in its implementation. And indeed, as it happens, the ministers that are, that are there to implement it are under DUP control. And I think one of the points that we're going to do everything we can to frustrate the protocol because it is dangerous for the union and it is to the detriment of our trade okay, with our but biggest. Jim, is there not a danger block? as well that you could whip up dangerous sentiments, that we can be complacent about the peace holding, and that if you don't act responsibly, that there could be elements, particularly in loyalism, who could take matters into their own hands? Well, I think if you saw the five point plan that was announced yesterday, it, it's moderate, it, it's uh, commensurate with the threat. We're not calling people onto the streets asking them to sign an online petition. Uh, we're going to lobby Westminster and our own uh, the cabinet in London 
Um, we're going to do it by democratic means, but it's quite clear that something has to be done because it would not be tolerated in the Irish Republic. You but would the, the, not tolerate a border within the Irish Republic as far as customs controls are concerned. So why should we tolerate it within the United Kingdom? The, the problems that uh, Jim refers to here are the problems of Brexit. That is why the Irish government was totally opposed to Brexit happening in the first place. When they voted for it, we, were, uh, we asked them and we didn't want them to leave the single market or the customs union. We proposed the backstop and the protocol is a resolution for all of those other elements being rejected by the DUP and others. It is really important to strong politi political leadership here now that um, there is sensible solutions to the protocol. So I support the calls of the Alliance Party and the SDLP and others who have looked for those um, uh, you know, sensible solutions. But at the end of the day, and I say this as a Minister of State in the Department of Agriculture who has responsibility for trade, you know, I see all the challenges every day that Brexit brings up. This is what Brexit is. This is what the people who sold Brexit uh, now have to live with the consequences of. The protocol is as good a solution as we can. We're open to sensible solutions um, to it. In, in relation to the small measures that are affecting people today, but the protocol has to remain. It's part of okay. international law. And can I, I just make you, this... No, we have to move on. Jim Wells, thank you very much for joining us. I want to move to the issue back here in relation to COVID-19 and the mixed messages, Martin Hayden, in relation to quarantining. Uh, confusion as to what's self-isolation, what's quarantining in a home, whether the Gardaí can enforce it. Isn't that the greatest proof of all? that what we really need to do is do what they do in the Southern Hemisphere and anyone coming into the country has to have two weeks of quarantine in a state-run institution. You know, we've made huge strides in recent times in terms of adapting and uh, changing to the changing environment that COVID brings up. Um, very few recently, weeks ago, we didn't have any detail of the variants. Now we do, and we've changed our approach accordingly. Um, we made very significant changes in early January in terms of people's um, uh, ability to travel into here, and those changes change again. There are um, still 800 people a day coming into the country. I mean, are you satisfied it's all right for them to go on to their own homes and that you trust them, particularly if they're the type of people who've been off on a sun holiday, that they'll come back and self-isolate properly? So it, it is against law and it is uh, a penal provision if somebody travels un unnecessarily outside of the 5k where, from where they live. If they're going on their holidays, they're subject... Talking about the people coming back now. Yeah, they're subject to a €500 euro fine if they're found to have done that um, and €500 euro both ways. €500 euro fine is not going to stop the transmission of the disease if they don't quarantine afterwards, will it? But the, the, the point is, like Matt, we do need to ha keep um, a sense of proportion here to the issues at hand. There are a thousand people today, unfortunately, who tested positive. None of those cases, as far as I'm aware, are linked to foreign travel. We have 3% of people travelling in this January compared to what travelled last okay, January. Okay, sense of proportion, of Pierce. What would Sinn Féin do? Look, we've, we've been calling for this since the first wave of the pandemic, uh, and that is to implement the public health advice. The chief medical officer looked for mandatory quarantine uh, as far back as around April or May, and we've been calling for that to happen. The government ignored it. They set up kind of some type of uh, group along with the Attorney General to look at the issues. Um, and, you know, we're at the first week in February now, and they're starting to figure out that they need legislation for it. And it, it is a mess. It is a shambles. Yeah, but would mandatory quarantine for people flying in and coming by ferries actually work when the same people could then instead go via Belfast and come over the border? Would you not have to shut the border no. simultaneously well, to having mandatory First quarantine? of all, we, we want mandatory quarantine. We want uh, the, that system on an all-Ireland basis. Actually, we propose that in the executive. There are issues, and you can see some of the issues we had in the, the first clip that also transfer uh, into the issue of COVID. But that that's still no excuse for us not here to do what we can at a time when hu a huge amount of sacrifices are made by 
families, by business people, by workers, by, by, by our entire community. They expect the government to do the same. So there has been a recommendation here to actually have mandatory quarantine. That is about actually stopping people coming into the, to, to the state. It, it, it should apply to everybody bar essential uh, travellers, and it should be in a proper centre, which is a hotel. What the government are talking about doing is now that you can quarantine in your own home with complete mixed messages, starting on this programme last night, where the health minister was saying that it's not in your room, that you can somehow quarantine with the rest of your family. Members of your family that are possibly working in our health services, others who might be working in frontline front retail and other sectors, and that that's some type of quarantine. Then we have the tonish to say, no, that's not what's needed. They have to quarantine in the room. And then we have the teacher coming out which nobody understands what he said in the doll. It is a complete and utter shambles. And this isn't something that came, uh, came about last night or last week. This has been known about and been asked for by the CMO The hypocrisy of Sinn Féin and the opposition who can change their positions regularly. You know, Pierce talks about last March when himself and the, uh, Sinn Féin and the DUP couldn't agree on schools. Uh, only a couple of months ago in December, Mary Lou Macdonald was attacking Leo Varadkar because he said people should not travel home for Christmas. Um, and she wanted everybody to pack on the planes come home for Christmas and open up the pubs and now they want to lock people down as prisoners in their own home in terms of this. The thousand people who tested positive today, um, the advice is to stay at home. That's not mandatory either. There's no, um, the public health advice is not to make that mandatory because if it was, um, there's a fear then people wouldn't put themselves forward. So we have to have the approaches that are uh, identify the risks, identify where the cases are coming from. You know, the, the, the um, it's very easy for people to make this a binary decision yeah, or, or, or yeah. one thing to blame. So it's international travel is the focus now. It was hospitality in December. Of the thousand people today, they, those cases did not come from international travel. Those cases did not come from hospitality Martin. because it's closed. Martin, um, how many people how many people uh, that, that have COVID-19 now are subject to the British strain? Seven, over 70% at the minute. That came into the country through travel. Now, we, yes. have, other, we have other strains throughout, uh, throughout uh, the Europe and the world. And there's no, let me finish this here. There is no guarantee, absolutely no guarantee that we can keep them out. But as people are making huge sacrifices right across society, what they expect from government is to do their damn best. So what should we be guided by? Not what Sinn Féin is saying, as we've been calling for you to uh, uh, impose mandatory quarantine since last April, but actually the public health advice. Uh, Tony Houlihan and Neffet have argued for mandatory quarantine as far back as then. You have refused to do so. They have also uh, asked. They that don't they have mandatory also, quarantine. They have also yes, they do. They have no, also asked. The country, they have also asked that the second PCR test is mandatory. That the discretion is taken away from it. Again, you have refused to implement that. Now the Sinn Fein is in power in Northern Ireland. And if if you were able to manage in Northern Ireland to have a, a single all island solution, well then that would be a possibility. Well, the idea of, 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 you know, of having that approach here. When and there's a, 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 we are divided on this island by a border uh, with a different jurisdiction. So why are you arguing for it to be done for Brazil? Well, for example, let me just make this point. You're using the North as a stick, right? And, and that's the only thing Fine Gael do. The reality is we in the executive have tried to do that. The DUP has used the veto, which is in but the Good Friday agreement. we have to live with the practicalities that, of course, that that is the situation. Uh, and the point is, you are now doing it belatedly for Brazil and South Africa. Why? It's not, of course they can come in through the North if, uh, 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 without mandatory quarantine, but you're still doing it. Why? Because the risk is great. The risk is great. And as people are making sacrifices, the they expect the okay. government to be calm and to step up. Very quickly. We have to have the measures in place in terms of the coming in. The measures do 
count for somebody coming down across the border. But what you're proposing won't work on the basis of the situation. Okay. So how do we mandatory right, quarantine in our there. homes and our bedrooms? Thank you, for both of you. My thanks to Piers Doherty for joining us. Minister of State Martin Hayden will stay with us. After the break, we'll be asking why the high rates of COVID remain with deadly effect in our nursing homes. And later, country music superstar Nathan Carter will tell us how he stays positive and reaches out to his fans in lockdown. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. Minister of State Martin Hayden is still with us. He's also joined by Professor Ronan Collins, construct, consultant in geriatric and stroke medicine at Tala University Hospital. And Sarah Lennon, Executive Director of Sage Adequacy, joins us via Skype. Sarah, positive COVID cases involving staff and residents in nursing homes is now coming up towards about 4,500. Why so high after a number of weeks of lockdown? Good evening, and I, I just suppose just to say at the outset, just to offer sympathy to everyone who's lost a beloved family member over over the course of the pandemic and in the past month in particular. You're right. Um, there's been an enormous amount of COVID outbreaks in nursing homes. There's currently 193, um, and we know that about one in three deaths over the last month have been um, within nursing homes and nursing home residents in particular. The reasons are complex. Um, there was an Oireachtas Committee on this very topic and um, it, it addressed the matter and said there were still questions to answer. And there was an expert panel um, which came up with dozens of recommendations. But we know that there are two immediate things that could definitely help to address the issue. Um, that's the, the prompt vaccination of residents and staff and also addressing what's currently um, being experienced in nursing homes, which is an acute staffing crisis. Yeah, and the numbers that have died, it's shocking to think that there's about 370 deaths attributed to nursing homes. Was it always inevitable that COVID was going to get back into the nursing homes or had there been a confidence that measures would be put in place to limit the outbreaks and therefore limit the numbers dying? You're right. Um, There's been a huge amount of, of deaths and I think there's been an enormous sacrifice made by nursing home residents and their families and a lot of measures have been put in place, but I think it has to be said at this point that despite the measures that have been taken, we've, we've failed. Um, we know that the numbers in nursing homes will go up um, in line with community transmission. And the higher the rate in the community, obviously the higher the rate in nursing homes. But, but understanding that as we did after the first wave, um, the huge 
um, um, impact that the virus can have. We need to look at whether the very nature of nursing homes, the very nature of congregated care, whether we can continue to use that model into the future. Sarah, another thing that strikes us is the amount of loneliness, again, yet again, people in nursing homes not being visited by their family and friends, and also the effects on those on the outside. Is there anything that can be done in relation to that, or is it just something we have to live with until such stage as everyone is vaccinated? You're right, um, and when I mentioned the sacrifice that people have made, that's been the biggest sacrifice. People have essentially locked themselves away or been locked away in nursing homes for 11 months going on a year without that contact with family member. And for a lot of our older people, particularly people who may have dementia, that can seem like an extremely long time. And again, we know we've been told that loneliness and isolation can have an enormous impact on health and well-being and have an impact on how well the vaccination actually program uh, rolls out as well. Um, so what we need to hear next from, from the HSE and from the government, and I understand that that's on the way, will be guidelines once the vaccination program is completed, what that future looks like. Can people begin to have visitors again? Can they themselves actually begin to visit their local community as well? Martin Hayden, how advanced is the plan to make sure that we do look after the nursing homes? Uh, to my understanding, obviously, you know, the, the focus has been on getting everyone in care homes and nursing homes uh, and the staff vaccinated as, as the top priority, as the first targeted group. Um, and therefore, that will allow us, obviously, to safeguard them um, and identify, the, uh, acknowledging the fact that they are the most at-risk group in the country. Um, but also then to allow us to be able to get back to a position where we, we can have people visit their loved ones in nursing homes again and the residents there um, you know, can benefit from that social interaction that has been so sorely missed over the last year. Professor Owen Collins, could this have been done better? I don't think since the first wave it could have been done uh, better. Could it be done differently? Potentially, yes. We obviously can change the nature of nursing home design. We can change our system of congregational care in the space of seven or eight months. So we have a model of residential care that we're working with uh, and that exposes people to risk in congregational care. Not in any way to be flippant because this has been a very tough period. You know, I left my own hospital where we've had you know, four or five deaths in one of our wards. This takes a toll on staff and on families uh, to watch uh, the level of attrition uh, and people dying. There's real human stories behind this, uh, but not in any way to be flippant. But if we had an outbreak of pandemic flu, the same thing would happen in our nursing homes, except this is 10 times worse. And the reality of it is, is it's very difficult to keep a virus out of a congregational setting. When I say could we have done things differently, and you hit on several, you hit on another point about the quality of people's care and social isolation and despair. It may not be the time to have this conversation, but we have to recognise as well that not all the population in a nursing home are homogenous. Many people in nursing home are in end of life care. Many people are not. They're fitter and are more robust. And so to protect a population of a mixed if you like, population like that, but in a congregational setting, my own personal view would be, given that there's a lack of evidence as well, that this vaccine will work in the more frailer of people, that a better way of protecting them might be to ensure that the care workers are vaccinated first and foremost, and that also that a visitor is vaccinated for each of those patients. Because, as I said to you, the reason this probably wasn't pursued, and this is where medicine actually has been handcuffed by its own principles of evidence base, 
because we can't wait maybe to make the right decisions for the evidence base. And what I mean by that is that there was a doubt, for example, that given the vaccine would reduce the transmissibility, that your ability to transmit the virus to someone. And we now know that the vaccination, the evidence is now emerging, as we, as intuition would have told us, as with every other vaccine that we've ever used, it does reduce transmission. Sorry, but that's the AstraZeneca vaccine, isn't it? But isn't that the one that there's concerns about whether no, it works all, properly for older people? But all the vaccines will reduce transmission. And so, for example, I've been vaccinated in... In, in my own hospital, I'm very grateful to receive it. I feel slightly guilty being vaccinated, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I have older parents living in the community, etc. But the reason I actually accepted the vaccine so readily is because I believed that the vaccine will reduce my chances of transmitting this. And let's be clear, staff are major vectors of, of transmitting um, this virus. And if you want to slow down the spread of the virus, you identify who's spreading it and you vaccinate them. I mean, that's true with measles, mumps, rubella. I'm not a vaccination expert, but that's the thoughts I would have on well, it. Well, Martin Hayden, how far advanced is the plan to make sure that the staff in the nursing homes are vaccinated? So of the 580 nursing homes in the country, um, I think it's 463 of them have been fully vaccinated staff and residents. Uh, there was 117 that for uh, a variety of reasons, uh, not everybody in there could be uh, vaccinated because either some of the staff or some of the residents were actually out sick with COVID or were recovering from COVID. Um, so there's 117 and of those 117, it was between 10% to 40% of either staff and residents. There's only four nursing homes in the whole country where we couldn't access at all uh, due to COVID and we will go back in there for that. And one thing to say here, Matt, is like, you know, we know that when the levels are so high around the country, it invariably means that the levels are going to be very high in our nursing homes. It, it, it's, it's, it is a knock-on implication that is really, really hard to stop it getting in there, despite the best efforts of all of the people who are doing Trojan work in our nursing homes. This is why government and the general public have to continue to double down our efforts that we're making now in taking all the advice and the public health advice to continue to drive down the instances uh, of covid throughout our community to safeguard our most vulnerable, including those in nursing homes. Sarah, do you accept that the vaccines have been given out as quickly and effectively as possible in the nursing homes, taking into account delays caused by outbreaks of the illness as the vaccinators arrived? As you say, there have been delays caused to, by outbreaks. Um, I think what we what we saw was there was a, a schedule to have the vaccine delivered by the end of January, and then that was accelerated. Um, so the fact that it was accelerated meant that it could have been quicker. The original plan could have been quicker. And so what's absolutely essential is not only the second vaccine handed out, but also those individuals who have missed out, um, uh, the 117 nursing homes where there hasn't been a full rollout, we're told there'd be mop-up clinics. But detail on the mop-up clinics is, is quite slim on the ground at the moment. We have a lot of family members contacting us in SAGE Advocacy. We have a lot of residents themselves wondering when they'll get their vaccine and when these so-called mop-up clinics will be carried out. Ronan, what about the news today that there's going to be a concentration for the over 70s on the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines? Is that going to slow things down dramatically for older people, particularly with the ability of GPs to be able to administer uh, drugs that need to be vaccines that need to be kept at lower temperatures than the AstraZeneca one? I'll preface my remarks by again saying I'm not a vaccination expert, but I will make this observation. I think strategically, I mean, the government are looking at the available evidence. There does seem to be less efficacy um, with the AstraZeneca, not 
still very useful efficacy, I have to add, but maybe less efficacy in older people. That can be true in vaccination in general. So then the government has three vaccines. So then it makes sense that you use the stocks of the vaccines that are most efficacious in older people in older people. And you use the other very useful vaccine. Let's be clear about this. A very useful vaccine, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine, to also people who are at high risk who may be younger in the community who are living with chronic diseases, etc. So I think the government is strategically probably making the right decision. I have to say the HSE have managed the cold storage chain very well, actually. And I don't see that being a major impediment uh, to outrolling the other vaccines to older people. And I know you keep saying you're not an expert in vaccinations, no, but from not. what you're hearing, and given that it is so relevant mm. to the older generation mm. that you are a doctor too. How confident are you that the antibodies will provide protection for a lengthy period? Well, again, this is a rolling story. And you know, we are gathering the evidence that never in the history of vaccination have we moved so fast. And so therefore, we're behind the curve in learning what the full effects. I think we can be fairly confident that there'll be good protection for at least six months and we will have more information at that stage. That's good news, at least. Thank you. We leave it there for now. Our thanks to Sarah Lennon, Minister of State Martin Hayden and Professor Roland Collins. After the break, we're going to be talking about resilience and country music superstar Nathan Carter will be telling us about a new initiative to bring joy to fans. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back. Well, it's almost been a year now, of course, since the closure of music venues for live performances. But a new initiative is allowing musicians to reach out to fans in different ways. Nathan Carter, country superstar, is with us via Skype. Nathan, thank you for joining us. Tell us all about this initiative. Yeah, basically, a lady called Trudy Lawler and her husband, Billy, uh, they came up with the idea that we would reach out to some fans who might be alone or going through a tough time at the minute. And she was thinking there'd be nothing better than to get a phone call from their favourite singer or performer. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, myself and Daniel O'Donnell and Cleona Hagen and loads of singers throughout Ireland have been ringing fans who have been, um, their friends have nominated them to get a surprise phone call. So basically I've rang uh, help, some healthcare workers uh, young children who are at home schooling at the minute. Um, I spoke to one lady this evening who lives down in Tipperary and hadn't spoken to anyone this week, so she was delighted to get that this was her only phone call this week. And um, it's been great. It's it's been so nice to speak to people. To be honest, uh, I haven't seen um, you know or spoken to many people myself, so to, to get chatting to people on the phone is great. Dick, how much are you missing the live performance, the interaction with your fans? Ah, missing it massively, to be honest. Uh, like many musicians and singers and entertainers, uh, 
I haven't done a live gig really and it'll be a year and in a week's time since I've done a, a proper gig you know so we were the first to stop and we'll be the last to probably get going again so uh, definitely I mean it's affected a lot of people's mental health in the industry I know that just because of the uh, what we love to do and to to be doing it at the rate that I was doing it and then to just stop and have to try and find a different career or try and find other ways of keeping busy is pretty tough. Um, but, you know, just taking each week as it comes and um, the like of this initiative is definitely bringing a lot of happiness to people. And um, I was and just glad to see. We're just going to be in a minute be talking to an expert on resilience. But what do you do okay. to try and maintain your own spirits and keep your resilience up? Uh, I have been doing a lot of walking and exercise and trying to stay outdoors, to be honest. I found that helps me the most, really. Um, as well as that, I, I'm trying to do a bit of songwriting every few days. I did a couple of sessions today over Zoom. Um, but it's quite hard when you're working with a couple of lads and they're singing and you're singing at the same time and then the signal drops and then... But uh, but listen, that's what we've got to do. And just trying to st find ways of staying... Uh, occupied and keeping the, the head busy, you know. Keep at it and keep making those phone calls. Nathan Carter, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. And psychotherapist Stella O'Malley joins us now. Stella, you've been writing about the difficulties of this lockdown, even for psychotherapists. Why so? Yeah, it's, well, I'm a therapist for years and I suppose I've never found therapy so difficult as I'm finding it at the moment. It's almost like doing therapy through a shroud. It's hard enough because we're through screens and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to connect with the clients and we're trying to, you know, show empathy and solidarity, which you can do, but it takes an awful lot of effort through a screen. It's, it's possible, but it's definitely much harder and it's much easier one on one. But not only that, an awful lot of our our resources, are, we're, we're hamstrung because we can't usually, you'd have very much reliable strategies like, you know, connect with old friends, make new friends, join, join activities, join, maybe do some charity work, maybe do some exercise with a group. All of those have been gone. And so we, we're kind of, there's so many things that usually you would turn to as a therapist and it would work for clients. They're, they might sound, seem trite, but they work and we don't have them right now. How important is it, we just heard from Nathan Carter about talking on the telephone, how important is it to maintain conversations with people and how difficult is it if you're not doing them through those other activities, group activities, where conversation sort of comes up as part naturally? Yeah, it's really important. I'd really urge anybody who's feeling isolated and down to kind of make a commitment to ring people, even old friends, new friends, people that you mightn't usually think of ringing, try to reach out to somebody on the phone. These Zoom calls can feel very performative and you're looking at me and I'm looking at you and it's all a bit intense. While the phone call, you can actually get into a good conversation and you can kind of ramble about different things. I really would say they are very good for, with what little that we have, they're very good for connecting with people. There's a new Amoric poll out this week. What has it been telling us about boredom and loneliness? Yeah, we're bored and we're lonely and we know it and we're feeling it. And I really think it's time that, you know, the, the director general of the World Health Organization, the founder, said without mental health, there can be no physical health. I think we've been all about physical health and I got it for the short term strategies. I got it for the medium term strategies. Now we're in the long term. I, I know we have to bring mental health and we have to put it front and centre into the policies, into the strategies, because 
it's it's as important as physical health. And without our mental health, we, we're at nothing. And I really feel there's been so much emphasis on physical health that we've forgotten things like mental health. And we need to really kind of bring it in. We need to start looking for more expansive kind of solutions and resolutions to what we're facing now because we're really starting to think this is the long term. They're even talking about September now. The Amoric poll is suggesting 43% of people are complaining about boredom. How do you really define boredom and how do you then deal with it? Well, I I don't know the actual definition of boredom, but we all know it when we feel it. But one thing I would say is don't beware of it. It really leads to really dark places. It's not something that you could say, oh, you're just bored get over yourself. Not this sort of boredom. If you want to look at animals, we are animals. Look at animals in a zoo and look at how bored they can get. And they start self-harming. They start rubbing up against the bars of the cage. They start biting themselves. We are definitely, I see it with my clients, I talk to other therapists and colleagues, everybody is saying that relapse is happening. People are having new destructive kind of kind of coping mechanisms. And boredom is really at root of it. And not only that, loneliness, isolation, feeling like there's a pointlessness to things, which is feeding into the boredom. There's a lack of purpose and you need purpose. How do you deal with that, so? Well, we need, I think we do need to be propped up a little bit. I don't think there is enough attention being given to it. I do think strongly that the teachers should be vaccinated, the SNAs should be vaccinated and the children should go back because I don't think they're coping. I'm talking to teenagers and they are bored with witless. And they're slack-jawed, they're demotivated, they're lying on the couches. And then I saw that woman yesterday on this show, Deirdre, the parent of the special needs child, it was harrowing. It's it's really, really awful. There's some what's terrible about mental health and when somebody's really in distress is it's private tragedy. Nobody else is hearing about it. You're you're falling apart on your own. And so they're they're on their own silently thinking, I'm not coping. And I'm saying, as a collective, we're not coping. There's a bit of what you might call holiday shaming going on at present of those who have somehow managed to get away during the pandemic to the sun. But Do you regard that as selfishness or do you actually buy the explanation that some of these people have said that they had to do it because they just couldn't live where they were doing in Ireland? Well, I'd be very reluctant to shame anybody who who said they had to do what they had to do. I do think very strongly that we don't know what's right and what's wrong now. As Ronan Collins said to the doctor previously, there's no evidence base. We're new. This is a new thing. Everything's an experiment. We don't know what's right and what's wrong. And we do know that the mental health is failing at a pace. And really since Christmas, we fell into 2021 and everybody seems to have collectively shuddered and said, this can't go on. We can't go on like this for another six, eight, nine, ten months. Well, then can you understand why people are reacting against the idea that they may not be able to go on a holiday in the summer? Maybe if they had to postpone us on holiday, they'd hope to have it in 2021. And now they've been told it may not happen at all. Yeah. I, I can't understand how they'd be very upset and I, I am upset. I think I think we're going to have to come up with something better. I, I don't think we're kind of quite using, we're a moderate climate. We should be using community-based activities. We should be masking up the kids and we should be meeting in the GAA pitches for PE. We should be starting to think expansively about this rather than just doing the same solutions we tried since last March and haven't worked great and we don't have an evidence base to kind of convince us that this is definitely the way forward. We think it is. OK, but in the absence of a collective opportunity, and it's been mm. denied to us perhaps for good public health reasons, for physical health, we think, give us yeah. tips as to how individuals can develop resilience. 
Well, the big thing about resilience is having an accurate analysis of your ability to cope and an accurate analysis of the problem ahead of you. So I, I think accuracy is the, the, the most important point around resilience, that you, you kind of evaluate your ability to cope and you go where you're, you're kind of nurtured, your nature takes you. Some people will need to, to kind of bring in more exercise into the life. Some people need to have more quietness because the children are getting at them and they need some time on their own. I really think each person has their own kind of feel good kind of strategies. What happens is life gets in the way and they feel they can't use them because they feel they should be homeschooling the kids. Lower our standards. We've got to lower our standards because it's too hard right now. Give yourself a break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring it right down. Don't beat yourself up. Let yourself, let the dinner be pizza and let the house be a mess and all things like that because it's too hard at the moment if, if to keep ourselves kind of sane in the face of this distress. Our thanks to Stella O'Malley for joining us. That is all we have time for tonight. I'll be back on radio tomorrow afternoon, back here tomorrow night at the slightly later time of 10.15. For now, stay home and stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 